Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahatha Lee. And we are very excited to be joined by kick-ass author and writer Kim Kelly talking about her new book and frankly, our labor issues here in the United States, Fight Like fight like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Waj, set it up for, for us, you know, the disaster that we are living in, in terms of always shortages, but never an increase in wages and why we have so many different tales that we tell about the American labor force. Yeah, very excited to have Kim join us. You guys have to buy her book again. It's called Fight Like Hell. She's also a labor journalist and a teen vote columnist. And we promised her that we will get her out within 30 minutes so she can go get her new kick-ass tattoo. So we will keep to that promise. But, you know, Kim, uh, you know, Danielle mentioned this. You know, we've talked about on the show that people are working two jobs just to stay broke in 2022 America, the richest, most powerful country on earth. And I'm not an economist. Uh, I'm an English major. I'm a simple man. I'm a simple, unfrozen caveman lawyer. I don't understand these big charts, but I have, you know, read that productivity has increased over the past 40 years. Uh, the rich have gotten richer. This means that workers are doing their job. They're working really well. Productivity has increased. And yet, income and wages have not increased. Explain this to me like I'm an eight-year-old. Well, if you're an eight-year-old that knows the word capitalism, we could start there. But if you're not, you know, like a, a Brooklyn Day School type of kindergartner, <laughs> We could go and talk about greed. That's what it comes down to, right? Mm. Like, like you're saying, productivity is going up. That means profits are going up. That means the people on top who are signing people's paychecks, they're having a great time. They're having bonuses. They're buying yachts for their yachts. They're reaping the, uh, well, <laughs> not the profits of their labor because they don't do nothing, but they're robbing the, reaping the profits of other people's labors. And I mean, when you are in that position, you have that much power, you don't have a government that really encourages you to do much to share the wealth. I guess some people are just like that. They want to hoard it all for themselves and not share. Meanwhile, all the people who are creating that wealth, whose labor is the like the only reason anything is happening, we're the people that get screwed. Even though there's more of us than there are of them, there are just so few, I suppose, incentives for the people at the top who, for some reason, need incentives to act like normal human beings and share a little bit. 
it's it's just kind of as simple as that. Like some people are just you know greedy dicks. You know, one of the things that ha- and that's that's a hundred percent true. One of the things that has been troubling me is that sentiment around greed, right? That this is this is what capitalism and the system has created is like this unrelenting greed in people. But also what I find is the the idealize the idolizing that we do of wealth and the wealthy right? That we, we look to the wealthy to tell us about their five tips on how to be just like them. And I'm like, oh, you mean have a trust fund? You mean be born into wealth? You mean, you know, be born into the currency of whiteness and to then to be able to build on top of that? And what we don't talk about enough in this country when we're talking about the labor force and the sharing is that we don't actually believe that the poor and middle class are deserving. And so I wanted to know, Kim, if you could speak to that and just our understanding of who is deserving of handouts, which we continually give to the 1% in the form of tax cuts and abations and all of these things, and who is undeserving, right? The people that are like Waj opened up with working two and three jobs, right? And we just look at them and we say, well, they're just not smart enough. As Donald Trump said, well, I don't pay a lot of taxes because I'm super smart. Pull yourself (laughs) up from your bootstraps. Right. But what if you can't afford boots? You know, mm. like, even our most common aphorisms don't don't include everybody. Uh, is it, there's that old saying, I can't remember who it was by, uh, something along the lines of Americans see themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Mm. Right. We never think like, oh, well, at least I'm doing better than that guy or that person over there. They're not pulling their weight. I am. So I deserve something. And I mean, there's been efforts throughout the entirety of history to uh, by those in power to foment those divisions and try and encourage that way of thinking, because like that is by dividing us in that way and making making some people think like, oh, well, I deserve more than this person. I'm working harder than them. I'm better than them. That gives them license to mistreat those people or write them off or act like they're not even people at all. And you know, throughout history, the the people that are worth less who aren't people, like they've shifted a little bit, but it's in this country specifically, it's always been poor working class people, specifically poor working class people of color, black and indigenous and Latino, Asian, queer, disabled, trans, like every potential person, every potential intersection of an identity that you could have that isn't like straight white cis white dude, like you're going to have a little bit more of a hard time. And there are people out there that are going to act like that's your fault instead of that's the way the system is set up. And that's one thing about organized labor that gives me so much hope at the very least. It's like just this idea that the more collective idea of like, look, we're all getting screwed. We all deserve better and we should all do something about it. Because, again, there's more of us than there are of them. And it's about time they realize that. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. 
inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. This idea of collective, I think, is important because I think this realization doesn't like sink in that actually it's the 1% that is screwing all of us. And like what you and Danielle were mentioning, right, it's this whole divide and conquer technique, which is so successful, especially pitting poor whites against poor blacks, poor immigrants and poor Asians, right? Part of the Southern strategy going back to the 1960s, where they're like, aha, this is how we can win over white voters. We can say that, look, look, these black people are taking away your rights and your jobs and you, the white man, have to be on top. But the whole time, if you just step back, you look at the elephant, the elephant is being ridden by, you know, Rupert Murdoch and the yep. Epsteins. And they're, yep. they're trampling all of us. And, and this kind of comes into focus with what happened last week with Biden as president, uh, forgave $10,000 worth of loans, right, for, for people making less than 125000 and up to $20,000 of Pell Grants. And the, the commentary... Uh, from, from the right especially, but also from some other folks was, well, I paid my student loans. Why should I have to help these folks back in my day? You know, if you took out a loan, you'd pay it back. And some of the folks who are echoing this are like middle-class folks, people of color. I'm like, yo, you don't see that you're being played. What would, you, what yep. would be your response to these folks who say, why should I pay for the bad mistakes of you youngins who took out a loan and decided to go to college why am i paying for this i mean you're not paying for that those ten thousand dollars aren't coming out of your pocket first of all so it's not like a personal insult to you but also it just comes down to like it's like when i argue with my dad who's a very like I don't, he doesn't watch Alex Jones. I don't know what he gets up to. But we argue about these things a lot. And I, I told him once, like, I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other people and you should want them to have better lives. Even if you've had a hard life, like that's not fair either. None of this is fair. Your struggle is valid too. But acting as though other people should struggle more just because you have, that doesn't seem fair. That's not very nice. I can understand the frustration for sure. Like nobody should be paying like hundreds of thousands of dollars just to go to school. That is ridiculous. And yet that's where we're at. And that's it, the question no one, and that's the question no one's talking about is like the system right. that is in play. Right. And that's what I want to get to the system that is in play. Like, I'll, I'll, I don't know if I ever actually shared this on, on this podcast. I went to law school. All right. I went to law school back in the day. I'm a licensed attorney. I, I'm an, I was born and raised in California. I went to UC Davis law school, public law school in state. All right. My final year of law school, they decide to raise the tuition, right? So I left law school with, 
I think about $55,000 worth of student debt, which comparatively is really good. All right. I, I graduate. It's friggin' 2008. It's the economic crisis. I come out and I'm like, what the hell? I was promised that, you know, I'd go get this education with this debt and I have a job. Nothing, le- nothing like that happened. Wealth got just destroyed. I had to work my butt off. And then in the meantime, now I look back and I look at the tuitions of UC Davis if you're in state. And I'm like, yo, I couldn't even afford this if I wanted to go to college right now. The whole system seems to benefit, as Daniel was saying, those who are rich and those who are privileged. And the whole in this whole thing with the student uh, debt conversation, Kim, that I think people aren't talking about, is like, this is predatory lending. You can't yes. even afford college. And then when you go on this promise of if you just pull yourself from your bootstraps and get the education and you get the, the student loan, then you're still punished by society for doing the right thing, right? How do we get to this conversation where we go beyond like this divide and conquer technique and actually tackle the system? I mean, it's identifying who your enemies are. Like, like we're saying, it's the system. What does that mean? It's capitalism writ broadly, right? But it's also the banks, it's the politicians, it's the lenders, is every every structure and every powerful person who is sort of squatting in the way of you having a decent life. It's not our fellow workers who are oppressing us. It's not them who are signing our paychecks or dictating how much we owe to the government or dictating how the police treat us because cops are workers. It's the people who are in charge. And I think just kind of encouraging a redirect of that very rightful anger towards the people whose boots are actually on our necks. Not the people who are being paid a couple bucks to make the shoelaces. It's the people who are grinding us down. That's where the rage should go. Not because a couple people have to pay a couple bucks less on their, you know, one of their many bills a month. Like it's not their fault that you suffered. It's all these other people have a lot more power that are ensuring the rest of us keep suffering. That's who you should be mad at. You know, and what's really interesting, Kim, about what about what you're saying, too, is the fact that this is something that I've also identified about American culture. We are we we have been lied to and gaslit into the understanding of rugged individualism. We do not function as a community or a collective. And this is what is very different to me, particularly about BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color communities, which are which do function very much about the, we the collective we are supposed to be you know it is supposed to be us that are helping the least among us right that shows you know who we are as human beings and what we and what we want as a culture we don't do that in america right like even when you look at the most wealthy it, these multi-billionaires it's like oh they did it on their own no they didn't they did Bullshit. it to your point on the backs on the backs of many 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 people. And they already were given millions of dollars to be as a leg up. And so I I wonder, you know, what, what makes Republicanism and capitalism be able to function in the way that it does is the pitting of communities against each other. Well, I did, and you need to, or you're the one taking so much, and that's why I'm suffering. And I'm wondering, you know, through collective bargaining, through unionizing, Is there a way for us, particularly in this moment, as work is shifting, how people work is shifting for us to become more community minded and actually recognize and identify, to your point, 
who the real enemy is. It isn't the person I'm sitting in next to in my cubicle or I'm standing next to on the factory line, right? It is the over, it is the oversee and the, and the collection of the system. And I'm just wondering how you think that we go about changing that mindset, shifting that mindset and the messaging that's needed. So I think one of the most effective ways we can challenge this mindset, we can make change person to person. It sounds kind of simple. It's probably a little on brand for a union guy, right? But unionizing your workplace, organizing with your coworkers, getting to know them, getting to know what struggles you share, what they're dealing with that you're not dealing with, trying to find that common ground and see the problems you need to work on together. Kind of just building that class consciousness, that idea of like, well, we're all doing this job. And then these people in middle management, upper management, whatever, they're doing something else. They're making our lives worse. They're making more money than us. They're where the profit is going. That doesn't seem fair. But, oh, we do have an option to do something about it. If we organize together, we can actually force change. People have done it throughout history. And specifically, I mean, I get into it. That's the whole point of my book, getting into how specifically marginalized people, the people with the least power, have used that power of collective organizing, collective bargaining, strikes, pickets, all of the things that come along with being part of a strong labor movement, how they've utilized those tools to force change and how that's happening right now, too. It's I mean, in unionizing workplace, it sounds it's, it's easy to say, yeah, just form a union. It's not that easy in this country. There's all sorts of laws and red tape and societal structures and political structures that make it difficult for people to organize, but it's not impossible. And I mean, honestly, thinking back to my experience, like I used to, (laughs) you were talking about my tattoo appointment earlier, like I spent most of my life in the heavy metal scene, right? But when I was working at Vice seven years ago, we organized, we unionized because we weren't making any money. We were getting treated terribly. It was for whatever, all the reasons people unionize, right? We're fed up. We're sick of this. We're not, we're not going to take it anymore. And that totally shifted the way I view myself as a worker and my labor and my place in this world. And it made me get so much more involved in my local community and political organizing in New York. It just kind of cracked open this little shell that I think a lot of us are, find ourselves squished into because I mean, the condition of the American worker is alienation and struggle. And when you're trying mm. so hard just to put food on the table, to take care of your children, your elders, yourself, who has time for anybody else? Well, that's the power of a union. You can make them give you that time and you can find that time and organize with your coworkers and see the world is so much bigger than me. And these problems are so much bigger than what I'm dealing with right this second. So the only way we can really survive this is to come together and fight collectively because on our own, I mean, we're just sitting ducks. Uh, you yeah. know, the, the, the challenges are so immense. And, and we're going to talk about some of these challenges to unionization, but let's talk about a, a positive story, uh, it, you know, crystallizing exactly what you just said. Uh, what happened in Amazon, right? Amazon has been trying, I think if we have to identify the good guys and the bad guys, and let's identify them. Amazon, Starbucks. I mean, they are terrified right now that workers in this moment, realizing that for the first time, perhaps in 40 years, they have some muscle that they can flex, right? They're crushing down right now on any attempts at exactly what you said when workers are like, ah, we have a moment here where we can actually demand better wages. And they underestimated this, this young black man who was trying to do this in one of, the, in one of their warehouses and 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 I want you to just tell us, take us through that story, how he was able with his friend to actually convince other workers, yo, we have a moment here, we should flex and we should unionize and how we pulled it off. Yeah, so get a shout out to Chris Smalls, the man of the moment. 
who with Derek Palmer and Angelica Maldondo and this whole committee of people in Staten Island at this Amazon warehouse, they, I mean, it, it's kind of a long story, but yeah, short version is they unionized their warehouse of 8,000 people. And the way they did that, they didn't join up with the traditional labor union because that's an option too. You can, you know, you can do it live, you can go DIY. They decided to, to organize their own independent union. And the way that they got people to sign union cards and they got them to vote for the union and to ultimately triumph over Amazon's union busting campaign, it sounds so simple again, but it was so effective. They just talked to their coworkers. They they met them on a very human scale. It was probably this is an effort led by young black and brown workers who were in a facility predominantly staffed by black and brown workers. So they were sharing a common language. There was cultural intersections. There was food. There were barbecues in the parking lot. Like they were able to talk to their coworkers during uh, in the break room and as they're going to from work on the bus like they're able to connect on a very human level that is not always available to uh, organizers from traditional unions because there's sometimes laws to keep them off the property but when the union is being organized just worker to worker purely like that it's pretty hard to crush it's hard to say oh these people are coming in and trying to change things and mess up our amazon family when those people are oh yeah that guy chris that i know from work Right. That's hard. You can't. It's hard to divide and conquer when there's nothing to divide. And so they they really and actually I do have to shout out because I spent a lot of time covering the earlier efforts in Alabama and Bessemer. They weren't the first group of workers to try and organize the Amazon facility. They were the first who pulled it off. But those folks in Bessemer, Alabama, they were the first ones to go toe to toe with Amazon and try. And they're still in the midst of a legal challenge to their their last election. Like it ain't over down in Alabama, but Staten Island, they pulled off. And now it's had uh, a little bit of a domino effect. I think it was in Albany just this week, another Amazon facility filed to join the Amazon labor union that Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer and Angelica formed in Staten Island. I think there's also an effort going on in Kentucky, uh, the same thing. Like they, uh, it's, they've gotten a ton of attention, which is wholeheartedly well-deserved and they've changed history and they're just it's just really exciting to see because that kind of David versus Goliath story, like we've kind of been conditioned to assume, oh, well, we're not going to win. They're going to get crushed. Jeff Bezos has more money than God. What are you going to do? But they won. And that is so important because seeing that happen and seeing them continue to be vocal and to be organized and be very public about this fight, that's inspired other workers to take up the charge and organize their workplaces. Like you can't put lightning back in a bottle. And like Chris Smalls and the Amazon labor union workers, they are on fire. Mm. Can you talk to us, Kim, about the reasons why, um, you know, outside of, of what can be very um, real threats? right, uh, of job of job loss, why people wouldn't vote to unionize. Right. Can you talk about what are some of the obstacles that are in front of people that Chris Smalls and others were able to either maneuver around because you're saying it was really a person-to-person appeal, but oftentimes when we hear, I mean, we know that unions have been demonized, but there are purposeful ways that they place these, these, these Goliaths pay, place poison and pills. So can you just speak to speak to that um, and, and why unionizing in some places fails? So one word, well, two words, union busting. Uh, this is union busting. To bust a union is essentially when a company or employer 
does their damnedest to break down a union effort to make sure that it doesn't go through and make sure that the workers do not get the union that they deserve and they want. And there are so many different ways, just this, this brilliant tapestry of terrible ways that employers can do this to intimidate their workers and misinform and threaten and just fully throw a wrench into the works. Uh, some of the things that Amazon has become famous for are in Alabama, they changed the traffic lights to make it more dangerous for organizers to talk to people when they were stopped in their cars on the way out of the facility. Wow. Uh, they hang flyers in the bathrooms and propaganda posters all over the work. And this is, this is not just Amazon too, but this is a common tactics, right? Hanging up posters, anti-union stuff all over, all over the place. Uh, one of the most insidious tactics that especially uh, high value rich companies love is bringing in high-paid anti-union consultants to hold what are called captive audience meetings. Captive audience meetings, essentially, you and a bunch of your coworkers get pulled off the line, pulled out of your offices, pulled out of wherever, taken into a classroom, and subjected to an hour, if not hours, of anti-union rhetoric delivered by somebody in a suit who's making like $3,000 an hour. And this happens, they can do, companies are allowed to do this with impunity. They can do as many of these as they want. And that is that is legal under our current labor laws, which are pretty jacked up and need to be updated real bad. That's legal. There are all kinds of things like that that employers can get away with. And then if they do get caught, the fines and the fees and the uh, you know the, the repercussions are so minimal for these million billion dollar right. companies. They just keep on doing it. And another thing that I think contributes it's not necessarily the companies doing this, but it's just sort of this broader anti-union vibe we've been dealing with for decades. A lot of people don't understand what a union is or right. how it can help them. They've only heard, oh, unions want your money or they're all corrupt. It's all Jimmy Hoffa, Concrete Shoes, Fat Tony on the Simpsons, nothing to do with your life. And that's something that even, even if it's not active anti-active uh, union busting, I've seen workers in newer campaigns in places or in industries that aren't traditionally as uh, heavily unionized, whether it's uh, like nonprofits or grad student workers, retail workers, fast food workers, sex workers. These are workers who have had unions before, have organized and fought in one before. But for whatever reason, they're told, oh, this isn't for you. Unions are for white guys in hard hats in like the Midwest mm. somewhere. They're not mm -hmm. for strippers in North Hollywood don't need a union. Yes, they do. And they're going to get one. You know, Amazon workers said, I don't need a union. Yes, they do. And they got one. Like, mm. There's this profile. I think there's just a lot of um, misunderstandings around what unions are and who the working class is, who is doing these jobs, who is part of the union movement. And hopefully, like what I try to do, what a lot of other great reporters and writers try to do is break that down a little bit and show, look, like, unions are for everyone. They're a good thing. There are reasons why the people in power want you to think that they're bad because they don't mm -hmm. want you to get any more power. They want it all for themselves. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I think that's an important point about how I think millennials and Gen X in particular have this this antiquated notion of, of unions, right? Because we grew up with Fat Tony, exquisite Simpsons reference, by the way, right? And and if you don't know your past, you don't know the history, you don't know the present. And I think that's important to break things down for people is that unions used to be a robust part of American life. Like unions protected workers. Like people were proud to be members of the union, right? That's how you got collective bargaining. That's how you got like safety measures. That's how you got like compensation. That's how you got higher wages. You know, oftentimes we, we, we focus on Trumpism and, and we, we take the, the DeLorean back to 2016. Sometimes we take it back to 2000 to Bush. If you can, can you take this back to Reagan? Because I think it's important why there was this deliberate attack on labor unions, which is why exactly what you said, that my generation in particular has oftentimes this seedy connotation of unions as these Italian mafiosos who are corrupt and, you know, eating pizza with Fat Tony. But that was a deliberate demonization and breakdown of labor unions done by the entire Reagan administration going back 40 years. So Ronald Reagan, may he continue to burn in hell. In 1981, <laughs> there, so a lot of it comes down to this very specific strike, the PATCO strike, air traffic controller strike. They went on strike because that's what workers do when contract negotiations break down. They need more money. They need better conditions. You go on strike. Classic union move, not a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal because it disrupts the flow of capital and commerce, and that's why you do it. But whatever, work is on strike. And Reagan, he decided he was going to break the strike. Not only was he going to break the strike, force them back to work, he was just going to fire all of the workers who were involved in that strike and blackball them so they couldn't get jobs in the industry anymore, just bring in a whole fresh new crop of workers. And this was significant first because obviously it knocked the labor movement back. It destroyed those workers' livelihoods. It set a terrible precedent. And it also was it was sort of this shift in the way that companies and unions, like labor management relationships function. Before that moment, it wasn't really that common to bring in replacement workers, right? If your workers are on strike, well, sucks for me. I guess I got to deal with this. It wasn't as antagonistic and uh, like kind of, the antagonism was there, but it wasn't kind of rubber stamped by the government. It wasn't, you didn't have this big, massive example of like, okay, so we can do whatever we want, basically, is what you're telling us. Okay, we'll just do that. And after the PACBO strike, I mean, there are labor historians and economists who know more about this than I do for sure, but it's just such a steep decline and just the, the public, um, like the public sense of what was happening, they're like, everyone saw that Reagan came in and was like, oh, you can't strike. You, what you, it doesn't matter what you want. You're not doing what we want, so you're out of here. Also, you can't work here ever again. Like the, it was just nasty and brutal, and it really just signaled this shift in the way that those employer relations went. And it really signaled a shift, too, in the way the Republican Party dealt with unions and labor movement and the way that 
it just sort of resolved, okay, here on out, we're just going to try and crush the movement entirely and move all of our support behind the rich business owners and elites who we pretend we don't like on Fox News. And we're going to try and crush the labor movement because they're giving too much power to regular people and they're impacting our profits. And this is messing with our, you know, trickle down economic nonsense. It, it was just, it was this watershed moment. And we still haven't really recovered because, I mean, I was born in the 80s. My dad is a union construction worker. I grew up around unions. Not that many kids had that, like, I guess the privilege of being from a union family anymore because so few people are in unions now. It's like down to what, like 10% union density in the country. It used to be like 30, 40, 50, like way back before I was born. But things have changed. The Republican Party is hell-bent on destroying organized labor, except for some reason, the cops and everyone mm. else. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yes, for <laughs> some reason. It's a whole other episode there. But <laughs> all that to say, that motherfucker, maybe, he, really, he really screwed things up for the movement, but he's dead and gone, thank God. And we're in a moment where people are trying to change that, trying to, I mean, people have been trying to change that for decades, of course, but right now we're in this moment where unions are at a massively high approval rating, like 68%. We had, I just saw some data from Bloomberg today saying that like the first half, uh, in the first half of this year, more union elections were won than they had been in all of 2021. Like things are happening. Unions are cool. We're having a hot labor summer. Like, <laughs> like hopefully, oh, and Reagan can't hurt us anymore. So hopefully we're in a good spot now. Um, so great. First of all, the fact that you just called Ronald Reagan a motherfucker just <laughs> warms my heart in a way that it hasn't been warmed in quite some time. Um, but a, for me- those who can't see, there was a smile. There was a pure <laughs> smile that lit up on Danielle's face when you said that. <laughs> it was like, ge- like genuine, like warming. <laughs> um, but la- last question for you, Kim, and I, I, we have enjoyed this conversation so much is what opportunities do you see now that you know, COVID in all of its complexities illuminated ways that we have been working in this country that do not make sense, right? Have also illuminated for us who is expendable and who is not, right? Um, Who is essential, right? Um, So that the rest of us can stay cloistered away safely, but they are expendable, not essential. And so I'm wondering what opportunities do you see now um, that weren't available to us uh, two and three years ago, now that we've been living in this pandemic? I think this shift of consciousness that you described, we're talking about essential work and this idea that for a couple months in 2021, all the people that for up until that point and now after that point have been ignored, like whether it's delivery drivers, grocery store workers, folks that clean the hospitals, folks that clean the streets, everyone whose work keeps this world going, people whose work is a million times more important than any CEO in America has ever been in their entire life. For a brief moment, they were recognized. Some of them got a little bit of extra money, a little bit of hazard pay. My partner works on a farm. He got a couple bucks of hero pay or whatever in uh, 2021. Not sure where that went. And a lot of people had that experience too, right? For, for this brief moment, we were valuable. We were recognized. And that all went away because people got sick of it. Employers got sick of paying 
and clapping and pretending they care about their workers. But the workers are still there. They're still going to work or they're quitting and trying to find something decent because for another brief moment, the government did something helpful and sent people a little bit of money. So they had a little bit of a cushion to think, okay, maybe I will switch to something that isn't quite as oppressive and soul crushing as what I'm doing right now. But all that to say, people, I think, have woken up, workers have woken up to the value of their labor and of their lives. I mean, we've always known that we're important, that we're valuable, but just seeing how easily that can be acknowledged and then seeing that ripped away, I think that really inspired a lot of folks to be like, okay, something isn't right here. You need us. You're not treating us like that. You're not treating us in the way that we deserve. Maybe we could do something about it. And we also saw last year for another brief moment, there's a lot of mainstream media coverage of strikes and labor actions. We had striketober, we had strike member, we had strike Sember, you know, the the names kind of petered off. But there are these big high profile worker actions at John Deere, grocery store workers, like it was in the news, people going on strike, people were part of unions, people were fighting back. That's inspiring. That matters. Sometimes you just need to see that something is possible to make you realize, oh, this is something I can do too. That's something that's so important about the Amazon Union Drive, and especially what's happening with Starbucks, because that's being led by young, diverse, queer and trans, black and brown, some college, no college, a lot of college people who were promised more than they were given and who worked through the pandemic getting spit on and yelled at and are now organizing like wildfire. Hundreds of Starbucks stores have organized and people see that. People... A lot of people order from Amazon. A lot of people go to Starbucks. Those are brand names they recognize, and they know they're owned by very, very rich men, powerful men. And seeing workers at those places stand up and say, this isn't good enough. We're going to unionize and do something about it. That matters. That's going to have impact. We're seeing it have an impact now. We're seeing those workers come together at places like Labor Notes, online, on Labor Twitter, like on TikTok. Workers are finding one another and realizing, again, there is so much more of us than there are of them. And we are so much stronger when we come together and fight for what we deserve. Before Danielle takes us away, real quick, everyone buy Kim's book, Fight Like Hell. Kim, real quickly, where can people find you? And what is your favorite heavy metal band? <gasps> well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Termally Online at Grim Kim, my old college radio DJ name. And I also have a Patreon and I also write all over the place. Please hire me. I'm broke. And my favorite band, I'll have to look, just going off the, the nearest tattoo, I'll shout out Bathory, Swedish black metal band from the 90s that are just like the, the cornerstone of second wave black metal. And everyone should look them up if you like satanic loud noise, because I sure do. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Ajahn Lee. And we will be back next week if, in fact, there is a country left. Inshallah.